Lord, we are so thankful and grateful for the multitude of blessings that we've received, and we give you thanks and praise. God, I pray that our blessings would not serve as a hindrance to making you the God of our life, the Lord of our life, that we would recognize the unstoppable salvation that has come to us through the person of Jesus Christ and given us freedom, freedom to worship, freedom to know you, freedom to be the purpose that we were created, which is to bring you glory and to bring you worship. So this morning, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would move in our spirits, and that you would transform our minds so that we might worship you to the fullest. In your name I pray. Amen. We'll be in the book of Exodus for the next few weeks up until Easter as we kind of look at an Old Testament picture of Easter almost. I'm entitled this uh, Unstoppable Salvation, a story of salvation. Uh, the story of how one man through the sovereignty and through uh, the grace of God would deliver an entire nation, an entire people group unto salvation. Much like Jesus Christ who would come to the earth later and would rescue, deliver, and offer salvation for all who would submit to Him, to all who would recognize, to all who would come to the place where they recognize, I am not the God of the universe, but I sure need one. I sure need God in my life. I sure need the person of Jesus Christ to come in and reverse my thinking and to transform my heart, soul, and mind. The great Vince Lombardi, it was once said, at the zenith of his career after he'd won his second Super Bowl, uh, came home, and uh, his wife was already in bed, and it was cold Green Bay night. And uh, he, when he hopped in bed, his foot touched her, and she said, God, your feet are cold. And he said, Honey, when it's just you and me here in, a, in the house, it's fine if you just want to call me Vince. Now, that's a pretty ridiculous example of an individual who thinks he's a little too big for his britches. But, you know, the real truth of us for us is, and that's very much what the gospel is. It's recognizing that the worship of anything else other than God is slavery and that salvation is God's delivering us, delivering mankind from our sin. And our primary sin is that we just want to be God. We want to be the God of our lives. We want to call the shots. We want to decide what's right is right and wrong. We want to decide uh, who ought to go to heaven. We ought to decide what we get and what we don't get. We want to be in control. We want to be in charge. You know, um, the uh, originator of AA, one of the things that he used to tell them when they first started, he said, I want you to look at the person on your right and I want you to look at the person on your left. And I want you to say to them, I am not God. <laughs> and, you know, uh, some of us just need to do that. We need to get up in the mirror and go, I am not God, but I sure need him. And that's where salvation begins right there. You see, you can't come to salvation until you come to that place where you recognize, I am not in control. Matter of fact, that's a factor of pride. I'm not totally in control. We, most of us, particularly as men and even women, for the most part, we want to be in control. We want to control things. And we wanted to be, have things to happen at our discretion. And when things don't happen that manner, it frustrates us. It angers us. Matter of fact, here's what really happened at 9-11. You know, when the 9-11 tragedy occurred, 
there was an outpouring of people into the churches. There was an outpouring of people who went into depression and discouragement. And you know why? It's because the God of their life was security, economics, national security. They had faith in a government that nothing could ever happen here, that nothing could ever happen to my portfolio. And when that crashed, what it did is it exposed for many of us that at least in part, what was on the throne? I'm not saying that wasn't a tragedy, and if you're a believer, it should, should have, shouldn't have bothered. It certainly should have. But the truth of it is, some of us had placed our faith in an image. In an image of what we thought had been given and what we deserved. And when that image was destroyed, it forced us to say, what is real? And what is it that I am living for? What is of eternal value? And that's the question we have to ask ourselves today. Here's, here's the three points of my sermon. Uh, I'll give them to you for those of you who need to leave early. Um, number one, the worship of anything beside God is slavery. Number two, salvation is God delivering mankind from sin. Number three, God is always working in the background. We're going to see... Here in the story of the Exodus, the story of Moses, we'll see the Pharaoh who's come into rule. Matter of fact, this is a new regime, the Bible uh, indicates to us, has come on the throne. People who didn't know Joseph or have any allegiance to him. And matter of fact, the Pharaohs, many of them, thought themselves to be gods. Some would even go as far as to say that the gods are in subjection to them. And so you have a man who thinks he is God, but he's a God with a problem because he looks out and he sees this foreign nation right outside his gates that's multiplied to well over a million people. And he's become nervous. Let's read the story here in Exodus chapter one. <clears throat> and by the way, you're going to see the term Israelite used in a, one day. We'll just do a sermon on what does it mean when you see the word Israelite, because it means multiple things in multiple different places in Scripture, okay? So in this context, it's talking about Jacob, who has had his name converted by God to Israel, okay? And he has 12 children, and those 12 children multiply over a process of 400 years to over a million people. Now, this, this promise was given to Jacob, uh, excuse me, to Abraham, in um, Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, and one through, actually one through three, but specifically verse 2. And so when we're saying Israel in this particular instance, and they would not have called themselves Israelites, they were, the, they were Hebrews at this time, but for the purpose of our context, that's what we're referring to when we say Israelite here, or we say uh, Israelis. So with that understood, uh, let's start here. In uh, verse 6, now Joseph and all his brothers and all the generations died, but the Israelites were faithful and multiplied greatly, became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Again, this is in keeping with the promise of Genesis 12, 2. And then a new king, and talking about the Pharaoh, who did not know Joseph. Actually, we know that there from history that there was a revolution that occurred. And so literally there is a new people group that is in charge of Egypt. They've joined the north and the south, and Egypt has basically been unified as a nation here and as the predominant power of the known world at this time. And so this new Pharaoh has come on the throne, and the Israelites have become too numerous for us, he said. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, 
or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So at this point, they have probably been paying taxes. They've been contributing to the economy. They were not recognized as Egyptian citizens. They had their own culture. They basically lived in a suburb uh, outside uh, called Goshen, and uh, they have flourished here. Uh, to, again, scholars would say anywhere between a million and two million people. The Pharaoh looks out and thinks, man, that is too much. I, I don't feel good about them. We don't know them that well. And they're right outside our gates. And what if a warring nation comes and they decide to, to join them? This, this is not a good thing. So what, do they, what is he determined to do? Well, we're going to make slaves at them is, is what he determines. Here's, here's how we're going to deal with this. So. They put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor and built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. So his thought process is we'll make slaves out of them. They've probably been working as serfs almost at this point, but now he's literally going to make them slaves. And their slave masters or taskmasters that probably rode, in, rode into town with their chariots. <clears throat> they gathered the folks and said, this is what you're going to be doing from this point. And they, so they took them by force, and they place them into slavery. And so as they are in slavery, the Bible says, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. So we've made slaves out of them, but that doesn't seem to be working. So the Bible says that they begin to work them ruthlessly. They begin to work them to uh, to an extent that they would probably beat them, and they would uh, work them so hard that if they had an injury or if they weren't feeling well or if they got sick, that they would die sooner. They basically, basically are seeking to wreck their health. They would get the most they can out of them and then hope they die early. Not only that, as they become more ruthless, uh, the, the Israelites will certainly get the message and they'll stop having so many children because their children are simply going to be born as slaves and we're going to ruthlessly work them. And their lives are going to be bitter. That's not what happened. Happens at all, the Bible tells us. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields and in the hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. What's interesting, actually, in that text right there, the same Hebrew word is used. Basically, they, they made them slaves. It, it uses that word four times, that they are in slavery. Uh, but when we... Translate it, it would seem awfully redundant, so we use different words, but basically you could read it like this. They made their lives hard with slavery and in brick and mortar with all kinds of slavery in the fields. And in all their slavery, the Egyptians used them as slaves. So they basically have been overtaken in every facet of their life. They are being made to be a slave and to feel like a slave. Now, now why is this even happening? By, by the way, it's, it's indicated in Genesis, I believe it's chapter 15, that, that something of this nature would occur. And you know, it initially happened because Joseph came down because of the famine. But the Hebrews were never supposed to live here forever. But now it's become home. It's become a comfortable place. It's where we've raised our kids. We have a house. It's all good. It's all good. And so they are content to just kind of live outside the city and to just kind of be dependent upon the nation of Egypt. But that's not what God had planned. It's not the promise that he'd given in Genesis chapter 12 when he promised to multiply them and to make them a great nation and to bless them. 
So he begins to multiply them. Now he begins to stir them so that they are no longer comfortable staying there. And he will make them very uncomfortable to remain as slaves. So he continues here. He says, the midwives, excuse me, and then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives who, whose names were Shifra and Pua, and incidentally, they are probably the lead midwives. They're probably the administrators over all the midwives. Uh, when you've got over a million people, two's probably not quite enough. And so um, they are probably the, those in authority. And by the way, midwives in this particular age and time are kind of a, a lower tier in society. Uh, if you didn't have children yourself or if you were single and you were getting to be older, typically you might become a midwife. You might be assigned that position because you didn't have your, a family of your own and you could get up and move on a moment's notice. And so they were kind of the lower tier of society. So these two midwives are in charge probably of the midwives. And they're given this order. When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. And if there's a girl, let him live. I want you to basically commit infanticide. I want you to kill all the boys. And the midwives, however, feared God and not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. And they let the boys live. And then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked him, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And certainly, to directly disobey an order from the great Pharaoh carried the penalty of death. So they have risked their very lives by not killing these boys. The thought process was this by Pharaoh. If I can get rid of all the boys, it'll only, only the women will remain. And they can begin to marry in our culture and we will literally breed these people out of existence. But the problem was the midwives decided to fear God other than to fear the Pharaoh who held the power of life, who held the power to kill them and so they go before Pharaoh, and what do they say? The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives can arrive. <laughs> Telling you, they pump those things out fast. They're not like the Egyptian women. I mean, they've been working hard in those fields. They got, and I mean, they're gone. We can't find them. We don't know what happened to them. <clears throat> and there's probably some truth to that statement. But we also know that they feared God. So we can simply speculate here that they might have, you know, just take your time when you're going. They'll usually have their children pretty fast. Just take your time. Don't get in a hurry. Maybe they sent a warning to say, hey, we're coming. Whatever and however they did it, the Bible says this. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Remember we stated earlier that midwives typically didn't have families. They didn't have children. They were women who hadn't had children or they had not been married. And God blesses them with what they desired most because they stood for his fronts, because they were willing to risk their very lives for the children. Then Pharaoh gave the order to all people. All right, it's not just the midwives. This is a, an order to everyone. Everyone who sees a Hebrew who is pregnant, they already report it. And every boy who is born, you must throw him into Nile, but you can let every girl live. It's pretty amazing when you stop and look at it and think about it. 
God, as we said earlier, one of our points is this, is God is always working in the background. Don't you know that the people at this point are going, what's happened to us? Yahweh, do you see what's happening? Do you notice what's going on? You made a promise to our great-great-grandfather Abraham. And what's happening here? They're oppressing us. We're in slavery. We are suffering. But God is moving. And we'll see that through their suffering, through this edict that Pharaoh gives, that he thinks will take care of the problem, that will exterminate the Hebrew people, it leads a couple to take their baby and do what with it? Place it in a basket and put it in the water. And who finds the baby but the daughter of Pharaoh? And the daughter of Pharaoh takes that baby and, and then Moses' sister shows up and says, I know of a woman who can take care of it. And so his own mother raises him and she's paid by the government to do it. And then he's trained by the government by their tax dollars. He's trained in the ways of the Egyptians. He's educated. And he becomes the leader that he would never have become in slavery. But it all comes because of the edict that was given. Hey, God is always in control, though it seems the world is falling apart. So what does that teach us? What does this passage teach us? Well, it teaches us, first thing, that anything besides the worship of God basically is slavery. You see, we don't really understand what freedom is in our culture anymore because we just think of it in this way in our modern culture in, in the United States. Freedom is this. I don't have anybody telling me what to do. I don't have any authority that can make me do anything. And that's what we think freedom is. But biblically, particularly in God's economy, when we read the Scripture, that's not what freedom is, okay? Freedom is this. Freedom is us not being bound by anything other than God himself. We always have an authority in our lives, whether we like it or not. We can pretend to be God and we can play God in our lives, but at the end of the day, we all are under authority. The question is, what authority are you going to be under? What God are you going to be ruled by? Are you going to be ruled by the economy God? Are you going to be ruled by the security God? Are you going to be run, ruled by the money God? The power God? What is it that dictates the decisions of your life that you find fulfillment and meaning and purpose in in your life? What is it if it's taken away? If the 9-11 of your life occurs that it just folds and falls apart? Hey, I'm not saying as Christians we're not going to have hard times. We're not going to suffer. That's not what I'm saying at all. I hope you know me better than that. I am saying that we were created for purposes that we would bring glory to God, that we would be in relationship with Him and experience His salvation. And though we may have broken hearts, though our worlds may be painful, though we may struggle, we know that this is the purpose for which we exist and that one day everything will be made right and that eternally we will be with God forever in heaven. And that all things will be made right in the new heavens and the new earth. And we have our hope in that eternal fact. Not in what happens in the stock market today. Hey, I'm discouraged like you when I look at my retirement. Okay? I'm just like you. But I'm not going to live my life wondering if, what, what's going to happen with it. All right? We're, we're going to do what we can. We're going to plan. We're going to do the best that we can. And, uh, and uh, trust God with the rest of it and realize, you know what? This world's not my home and I'm going to stay here forever anyway. 
So, the worship of anything else other than God is slavery. We're a slave to that. We're a slave to that finance, or we're a slave to being secure, or we're a slave to having to be in control. Secondly, salvation is God delivering mankind from sin. Salvation is God delivering mankind from sin. It's interesting, if you look at the Old Testament, I used to ask this question. How were people in the Old Testament saved, so to speak? And, and by the way, we don't, we don't like to use those words a lot of time. That, that's another evolution of our modern Christianity. We hear words like um, saved, born again, and sin. And we don't like those words. A lot, of people, a lot of Christians don't. Matter of fact, some people go, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those born again Christians. I'm a Christian, I'm not one of those saved Christians. I don't know that we really get that liberty, guys. It's like what we're saying is, I, you know, I'm a Christian, but I just, I just want some spiritual energy. It's kind of what we're saying. But do you understand that the Bible, the whole message, the whole story of the Bible is written so that we might understand this principle? That there is a God and we are not Him. And because of our sin, we are separated from Him. And so we are in need of salvation. But the only way that can happen is that we be transformed, that we be born again. Those terms are indicative of who we are. We can't erase them. And when we try to erase them out of our vocabulary and out of our mindset, we are erasing the very process for which God desires us to come to know Him. So, when we see those words, I think we have to understand. So, when we hear the word salvation, is that a necessary word? Yes! It's a necessary word because it's a necessary condition that we have. If you would ask the Hebrew children at the height of this time, do you need, you don't really need salvation, do you? Yes, we need salvation. And that's where we've got to come to. Yes, that's exactly what I need. I need a deliverer. I need someone who is bigger than me that can pull me from the depths of the despair that I'm in, from the situation I am, and can redeem me and can give me life and hope again. That's what salvation is. Salvation is God delivering mankind from sin. Now, let me throw something out to you. Let me throw a zinger out there to you in this passage uh, that I probably shouldn't, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. Did you catch what the midwives did? The midwives, when Pharaoh said, I want you to kill all those babies, uh, all those baby boys when they come. And when they come, you, you take care of them, okay? And you instruct the other midwives to kill them. But, but that's not what happened. And so when they met before Pharaoh, the Bible clearly tells us I mean, very specifically tells us that they decided to obey God, that they decided to fear God Almighty. And so when they come, what do they tell Pharaoh? They tell him probably the truth. They don't tell him the whole truth. They tell him, look, the Hebrew midwives, they're putting these babies out quickly. And we, before we get there, they're already taken care of. And the Bible says that God bless them. There's another word, sin. We don't like that word, do we? We don't like to use that word, sin, because people like it's kind of a negative connotation, you know. Yeah, yes, because what it is, kind of negative. It keeps us separated from God. It's the difference between heaven and hell, and it has to be dealt with. So, we think that sin is this. It's breaking the rules. Breaking the Ten Commandments. That's what sin is. Can I tell you, that is such a preschool mentality. It, it is that. But it's greater than that. It's anything that becomes more important than the glory of God in our lives. Anything that diminishes His glory, anything that diminishes 
his respect. So anything of that nature. So here are two women under the penalty of death who choose to do what is right. And I say it's what is right, and you can say that because they have no benefit. Most of the time when we lie, it's for it's, it's trying to save ourselves. It's trying to get ourselves out of trouble or get us something we want. It's not for the purpose of, you know what, someone is going to die, and this may cost me my life. You can appreciate this. If you were in, let's say that you took a trip to, uh, I should not even use this, but I'm going to be in so much trouble, but I'm doing it anyway. But uh, let's say you took a trip uh, to Palestine or to Israel or someplace like that, and you got captured. And you know what? During that process of capture, you, you escaped, you learned the language, but you found a couple of children who were in that same position, and you were able to maneuver yourself and dress yourself and lang- learn the language and that you were able to escape. But somebody came and knocked on your door one day in the place that you were hiding out, and they're going, we heard there's some children around here. Uh, some American children, we're looking for them. Have you seen any? And you said, no, I haven't. And you were hiding them under the bed. Would it be the most God-honored thing to do? Well, I cannot tell a lie. Here they are. Come on out here, kids. What if they were your kids? You think you'd do that? Let's just be honest for a second. Okay? What honors God? Knows? Can I tell you, that situation almost never happens, but the greater principle here is that worship and the glory of God. The real truth of it is, when you lie, it's always wrong, okay? So don't try to use this to justify it. Um, again, I know I shouldn't have gone there, but I encourage you to talk to me. Send me an email. I look forward to hearing from you. Thirdly, God is always working in the background. Isn't it amazing, as we talked about earlier, how the acts of, Moses, of Pharaoh actually worked for the deliverance of the children of Israel? How through this process, as we look ahead, Moses, trying to defend one of his countrymen, kills one of the Egyptians. And then it's found out and he finds himself in the desert. All the training that Moses had, all the authority that he has. But what he didn't have at this point was humility. And what is he taught in the desert? But the process of humility to where he returns, he returns as one of the people. Up to, the, up to that point, he was seeing it as one of the Egyptians. But when he comes back, he's one of the people. Because he's been in the desert. He's been suffering. He had the training, but he also had the desert experience. And so God, when he comes back, he's fully prepared for God to use him. Now, here's what's interesting when you look at it. I want you to think, you've heard me talk about this before, but you see a tremendous view of the foreshadowing of Christ. Through the life of Moses. You see the typology. Now let's look at a couple of them. I want you to think about this for just a moment. And you see this picture here. Both of them. The birth of the child would bring deliverance. Just as Moses being born. And being placed in that basket. God would use the birth of this child to deliver a nation. So do we see the birth of Christ. Whom it was prophesied. Would be used to deliver mankind. Both were sought to be killed because of their sex, because of who they were. Both were boys. If you remember, Moses, they were seeking to kill all baby boys so that the nation might be wiped out. Herod was seeking to kill, destroy all the boys in the Bethlehem area, just as Christ had been born. Both are delivered by the sovereignty of God 
through a message from their parents, and their parents take action that saves them. Both have time that they end up spending in the desert. Both are driven, are driven by the call and the righteous indignation of the deliverance of their people. Moses from the deliverance of his people from slavery and Jesus from the deliverance of his people from sin. Both are motivated by that call and that passion. They're both called to risk their lives as Moses goes before Pharaoh and says, let my people go so that they may worship you. And as Jesus goes before Pilate and not only risks his life, but literally gives his life. Moses said to the Pharaoh, let my people go so that they might worship me. And Jesus, through the cross, through the burial and through the resurrection, said to Satan, let my people go so that they may worship me. Turn with me to the transfiguration, the story of the transfiguration in John chapter 9. Or excuse me, Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, verse 28. And eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter and John and James with him and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became bright as a flash of lightning. When Peter, James, and John are looking at this, they probably would have certainly thought of Moses. Remember how when Moses went to receive the Ten Commandments, he had been with the presence of God. He came back and literally his face was shining. His clothes were shining. So here's a picture. Then the two, then two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So now we see Moses and Elisha. If you remember, God buried Moses. They never found his grave. They don't know where it is to this day. And Elisha rode in a chariot of fire onto heaven. So here are the two. Here's Moses. And Moses is symbolic of the age of law. Through the age of the law, man's lack of holiness, God's holiness and man's sin was revealed to him. That's what Mosaic law did. And then you see Elijah. Through Elijah, the, the head of the prophets, the great prophet, as a matter of fact, sometimes you hear it regarded as the law and the prophets. Repentance was issued. The, necess, the necessity of repentance was issued to the people. And now has come the age of Christ. So you had the age of the law, you had the age of the prophets, and now the age of grace is being ushered in through the person of Jesus Christ. The age of grace, which he reveals salvation from the sin. So you've had three revelations. The revelation of the holiness of God through through Moses. The revelation of mankind's need for repentance through the prophets. And now the revelation of salvation from sin through Jesus. All right? Now think about this for just a second. Who completed the mission into the promised land for Moses? What was his name? Joshua. Okay? Do you know what Joshua means? Yeshua. What does Yeshua mean? It means salvation. Salvation. Okay? Who finished the mission of Elijah when he went on? Who was his apprentice? Elisha. You know what that means? The God who delivers salvation. It's another form of the word Joshua. It's another derivative of the Hebrew word Joshua. Jesus means, as we were told a while ago, Yeshua, 
It's Joshua. It would be the Aramaic equivalent as it's translated into the Greek. Yeshua. Who had Moses of salvation. The deliverance. And now the fulfillment. Joshua. Yeshua. Now Yeshua HaMasiah. Jesus the Messiah who has come to deliver. Jesus did this for us. And here's our response. What are we going to do? Who's going to be the God of our life? Number two, are we going to receive the forgiveness of God? Are we going to receive the, the uh, deliverance from our sin? Are we going to really believe that God is at work? Working behind the details, even when we can't understand them. That's the story of the gospel. That we are sinners. We are not the God of our lives. That there is a God. And He recognizes us and He desires for us to come to know Him. But because of our sin, we cannot get to Him. So He sent a Yeshua, a deliverer, into this age of grace that we experienced now before they had limited faith. They had limited faith. What I mean by limited faith, they, the people of the Old Testament believed that a deliverer would come. But that was as far as it, it was an incomplete faith. They simply had to believe and trust God that they would be taken care of, their sins would be forgiven, and that they believed that one day a deliverer would come. But now that deliverer has come, that salvation has come. And we must recognize it, believe it, and receive it. Admit that we're sinners. Believe that Jesus is that salvation, that there's no other name by which we must be saved. Save the name of Jesus and receive it by committing ourselves to Him. Have you done that? Have you received the Christ, the Lord, the God of the universe by recognizing your sin, by confessing it and receiving Him? I want to invite you to do that today if you've not done that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. Lord, And if there's one who does not know you today, I pray that you would draw them by the power of your spirit. Lord, thank you for this picture of Moses, of how you've been at work all through history to bring about salvation. Even when we can't see it, we can't understand it, we don't, un we don't know. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't get caught in our own stuff to the point that, Lord, we miss the deliverance that you are offering to us today, the deliverance of salvation, of hope, and of purpose to which you have granted to all who call upon your name so that we may not be in slavery to, our, to the lust of our flesh, to substances that Satan has put up as false gods, but that we may worship the true and living God and know Him in fullness and power through the grace of Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.